0: there's a 50-50 chance that neither Donald Trump nor President Biden will be on the ballot in 2024.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on our outstanding panel today, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Our good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike, is good to see you, as always. Always great to see you guys. I'm excited about this group today. That's right, because returning to the Roundup is also Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics who served in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Al, it's great to see you again. Thank you for making the time today, and welcome back to Politicology.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's always great to share time with you. Every week seems to be such an interesting week.
1: It's speeding up, too. On this week's roundup, first, the refrigerator hum is getting louder. We will discuss the January 6th committee's public hearings. Then we'll look at how Biden and Trump's ages are fueling fears of an American gerontocracy. We're also going to talk about the confirmation last week that inflation has not peaked yet. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about the new Disney Pixar film that could take the culture war to infinity and beyond. (laughs) Again, that will (laughs) be in (laughs) Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast loaded with strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. And if you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button that says, try free or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. Last Thursday... The January 6th committee kicked off their public hearings in prime time across all the major news networks, except for Fox News, that is. According to Nielsen, at least 20 million people watched the first hearing, which is well short of the 63 to 73 million who tuned into the 2020 presidential debates, for example, or the 38 million who watched this year's State of the Union address. But it's still much larger than what you'd usually find for a congressional hearing. It's about on par with a big Sunday night football game or the Macy's thing. Thanksgiving Day Parade. So really significant. Thursday's hearing featured testimony from Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards, who was injured defending the Capitol on January 6th, and filmmaker Nick Quested, who was following the Proud Boys earlier that day. They also showed some never before seen footage of testimony to the committee. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr's thoughts on the claims of election fraud were one. Let's take a listen to that.
2: No, just what I've, I've been through. I've had, I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. One was on November 23rd. One was on December 1st and one was on December 14th. And I've been through sort of the give and take of those discussions. And in that context, I made it clear. I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it, and that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. I observed—I uh, think it was on December first—that you know, how can we? You can't live in a world where where the incumbent administration stays in power based on its view, unsupported by specific evidence, that the election that there was fraud in the election.
1: All right. So before we move to the Monday hearing, I want to get your reaction to the first night uh, of these hearings. It was in primetime. Mike, we've been talking about this for a while. Uh, As you've referred to all of the J6 news that has been uh, dripping out over the last um, year or so. This is like a refrigerator hum in the background uh, when it comes to public attention. Um, What was your reaction to the first night of these hearings and the way
3: they presented
1: it uh, to the American people?
3: It was extraordinarily well produced. It was it was presented in a way that was very digestible for the viewer, especially those that may not be kind of political junkies who are consuming content and looking for every uh, drab bit of news all the time. Uh, that that was really my main concern, and I think it has been for months. I, w- we've talked about this, you know, since since the committee began its work many months ago, and I and I referred to this refrigerator hum of this background noise of the story, which would ultimately reach to a crescendo with these hearings. Um, My, my concern was always whether or not it would be digestible by that time, those concerns that I had are gone. Um, The fact that they brought in a professional producer, you know, who works with, with, with television audiences, I think is, is evident. It's structured, right? A very complicated. um, Um, investigation again remember this is the largest investigation uh, certainly domestically that any congressional committee has ever undertaken it includes the president of the united states it includes probably half a dozen members more of the united states senate probably a dozen or more members of the of the house of representatives hundreds of fake electors dozens of 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 uh, state republican party chairmen. this is this is a lot going on to be able to present this octopus with this many tentacles reaching through so many parts of the american political system in a way that that you're not losing people is an extraordinary accomplishment they're doing that they're doing that extremely well um it's clean it's crisp the evidence is visual it's audio it's 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 undeniable it's it, it, you're seeing Fox's reaction is to just don't look at it. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. Nobody's refuting this. Uh, the only one who is, is kind of Donald Trump, which of course tells you it's it's all true. <laughs> um, so, but, but nobody else around them is, is, is refuting or denying this evidence. So I'm, I'm the, the only criticism I have and it's not an appropriate one is it's happening too uh, early in the summer? Uh, I think I mentioned I was hoping this would happen in an August time frame when it's closer to the elections and more on the minds of voters. That's not appropriate. That shouldn't be a consideration, and it's not. Um, Garland, the practitioner, no and you cannot help. <laughs> okay, I can't help. You know, being a political guy, going how is this going to affect the outcome of the races? Because ultimately, this is a political position too. And this is all the, the final thing I'll say about this. So, so A, A plus, A, A plus, all the way across the board for the committee. One thing I will say is this too, Um, this is being handled very differently than the impeachment hearings. This is a playbook. It is a roadmap of undeniable evidence played out for the American people for a prosecution, a criminal prosecution of the former president of the United States. That's what this is. The political theater it is obviously a part of it. They're wrapping it around it, but this is to demonstrably, unequivocally show the American people that Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, is a criminal, seditious crook. And they're and they're 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 doing it, they're proving it. And if that is all that is accomplished, <laughs> that is all, th- then they've accomplished their objective and set up the 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 layup for Merrick Garland. That's what this is about. And I, I'm, I'm confident that, that Garland will take the ball and run with it uh, beyond this. But this is something that the Department of Justice doesn't have the luxury of doing. We learned that, especially when Mueller did his report. Nobody knew what it was about. Nobody read the report. It was all, all the evidence was there, but nobody's going to read a 700-page document. This is foundationally different in its presentation. This is this is kind of a made-for-TV law and order courtroom scene where they're showing the guy walking in, you know, Colonel Mustard in the laboratory with the candlestick, you know, killing the victim. That's, they're they're showing it. And from there, they'll close their work and say, now it's over to you, DOJ. And I, I don't think of a way that they could be doing something this complex more masterfully
1: yeah so uh, al uh, Mike touched on something that I want to ask you in a minute but uh, but which is the politics the difference between the DOj investigation and the and the uh then the committee's investigation which are wholly separate one is political one is criminal uh, but first regarding the first night of these hearings what was your reaction how do you think they did
0: well Mike did such a great job analyzing it I agree with him a hundred percent there's really not much more to add to, to what he has said that was that was an excellent, uh, uh, an excellent encapsulating of what what transpired, and, and uh, an excellent, I think, uh, review or judgment of, of the quality of the process. I, uh, you know, I'm still hoping that something significant on the political side occurs. I'm stunned by the cult like environment we live in. Though initially, it's like, uh, hey, don't listen to what you're. Your eyes uh, show you, don't listen to what your ears show you, kind of like the 1984 novel. Uh, Because we have had, you know, quite a few elections, enough elections since the hearings to get a sense of the the impact of the hearings on the outcome of these elections. And, uh, you know, these hearings took place just a few days before people cast their ballots, by and large. And I was kind of shocked by what little impact this incredible demonstration of, of, uh, you know, illegal activity by the highest uh, office in the land had on the outcome of the elections. And, uh, and so I'm sensing, well, will that filter throughout this process? Will a criminal indictment change people's views? You know, I'm not sure at this point in time, what most thinks in America, and that's why I'm shocked. Uh, the, uh, you know, the the polls I've seen, the election results I have seen, in spite of the demonstrable evidence of this horrendous actions that could change uh, America for the worst for a long period of time, haven't really moved the needle very much, uh, it, which is, in fact, to me, a demonstration that we're in de- indeed in a cult culture uh, and uh, a cult culture that will not. Uh, accede to facts, they will not accede to the truth. Uh, They have developed their own desire to blindly follow a leader uh, in spite of all the things that Mike has said and and the hearings demonstrated. And so how do we deal with this growing monster, uh, which is almost like, you know, zombies in the political process for the first time. You know, you you don't quite understand how you deal with it. If your weapon is truth, And if your weapon is being persuasive, well, I'm not sure that that these hearings, which were perfect for that purpose, have demonstrated that we have not entered into a much more dangerous arena. And uh, that much more dangerous arena is the uh, supremacy of a whole culture and a large chunk of our population.
1: Yeah. Speaking of following the leader. Monday's hearings, fast forwarding now to monday, though those were focused on basically the committee's attempt to uh, hang the events of January sixth right around Trump's neck almost almost so that you know, once you see it, you can't see it. Um, and they focus on how often Trump was actually told that the claims of election fraud were false. Uh, spoiler alert, it was frequently. Here's what Bill Barr had to say about that.
2: There was an avalanche of all these allegations of fraud that built up over a number of days, and it was like playing whack-a-mole because something would come out one day, and then the next day it would be another issue. Also, I was influenced by the fact that all the early claims uh, that I understood uh, were were completely bogus and silly, and usually based on complete misinformation. And so, I I didn't consider the quality of claims right out of the box to, to give me any. You know, feeling that there was really substance here it got under my skin, but I also felt it was time for me to say something. So I'm, I had, so I set up a, a lunch with the AP reporter, Mike Balsamo, and I told him at lunch, I uh, made this statement um, that to date we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. And the president was as mad as I've ever seen him and he was trying to control himself. The president said, well, this is, you know, killing me. Uh, You didn't have to say this. You must have said this because you hate Trump. You hate Trump. And uh, I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. And, uh, you know, he was indignant about that. And, um, reiterated that they'd wasted a whole month on these claims on the dominion voting machines and they were idiotic claims i was somewhat demoralized because i thought boy if he really believes this stuff he has you know lost contact with uh, with uh he, he's become detached from reality if he really believes this stuff on the other hand you know when i went into this and would you know Tell them how crazy some of these allegations were. There was never, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. My opinion then, and my opinion now, is that uh, the election was not stolen by fraud. And uh, I haven't seen anything since the election that changes my mind on that. So
1: this is Trump's own Attorney General. Uh, explaining that Trump was clearly told how flimsy the fraud claims were, and he kept pushing the narrative. It's not just that he was being fed bullshit. He was told it was bullshit and tried to steal an election anyway. We also learned that Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, and campaign aide, Jason Miller, both testified that they urged Trump against declaring victory on election night, which of course he ultimately did as we watched in horror. And so, With that as the backdrop, Al, I want to come back to something uh, that I wanted to ask you earlier, which is, you know, we've talked about it on the show, but I don't think I've asked you about about this yet, which is, uh, I'm curious what your take is on the question really that comes to mind for everyone, uh, I think for most people, anytime the January 6th news comes up, which is the the question of prosecution of Trump, whether Merrick Garland's going to do it. And I just consider these two contrasting headlines, both within the last you know, 48, 72 hours. Fox News is running a headline that says, Garland may not be able to resist the left's demands to prosecute Trump for January 6th. And Salon.com is running a headline that says, January 6th committee makes the case clear for Merrick Garland. Failure to prosecute Trump is political. As both a lawyer and a guy who has uh, chaired the Republican party, there are, there are there's there are multiple considerations here. And I wonder how you think the politics of this is going to play out and whether or not the committee has ultimately built, uh, enough of a crescendo. I know they're not finished yet, but if, if you think that this is going to give the, you know, this display, this narrative that they've created is going to give Garland enough cover, political cover to pursue criminal charges. If he thinks he can actually win the case.
0: Yeah. Well, it all starts with Garland and I've been watching these hearings Uh, thinking more of him than anything else, even more of a popular outcome of him. I don't know how much popular beliefs will shift throughout these hearings for all the reasons I stated earlier. And so the key participant in these hearings uh, is Mary Garland. My opinion of Mary Garland is that he's an honorable guy, but he's a judge, he's not a prosecutor. And he's never been a prosecutor. He always filters things like a judge. And I think he sometimes forgets that's not his role at DOJ. His role is to be a prosecutor. And a prosecutor has to build up a case. And once he's done that, it's not his concern about the outcome. His concern is, has he put together a case that's indictable? And in his opinion, following the law. I'm not sure Garland thinks like a prosecutor. I think he thinks like a judge. In other words, ultimate result rather than immediate responsibility. Uh, my uh, my sense is there are two aspects to this. One is mens rea, and Garland, if he's if he's fixated on that, may not indict Donald Trump because mens rea is a high bar. That's what what your mental, in, what your intentions were, and uh, you know a person you know a person could be delusional, and uh, and 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 uh, you can't prove mens rea. Uh, you can only prove. About how delusional he is, I'm not sure that falls in a category of a crime. But there's a second category, which I think is irrefutable. And that second category is his actions. And what did his actions lead to do? And clearly, that his actions cross the line of criminal activity when it came to insurrection? And I think these hearings are proving that, uh, Yeah, yes, you've crossed the criminal line uh, criminal behavior line with this insurrection there's plenty of evidence being presented and i'm hoping that mary garland holds on to that rather than this men's race stuff that he may be you know he may be fixated on but uh, there's clearly my mind and the mind of many people i've talked to have been prosecutors that the facts are there for you know for an indictment uh, based on his participation on the insurrection
1: Mike, any uh, last thoughts on the on the garland question
3: uh, well, that was a a great encapsulation from al and and I've never heard the analysis or, or have had the understanding of Merrick garland's frame of mind as being a judge as opposed to a prosecutor, and that may be explaining his approach that's terribly insightful uh, I have been one person who has um I feel like a lonely voice out there saying, look, this is, again, is an extraordinary moment in American history. We're talking about not just a president, but half a dozen senators and and a dozen members of Congress. Uh, Give the guy a little bit of breathing room um, because he's got to have an airtight case when you're bringing down such a sizable segment of our government and forcing prosecution. Um, it, it is it, it is advisable what I'm hearing Al saying, um, and I, I need to think about it a little bit more. Um, that his job is not to be focused on the outcomes. This is if he's got the indictments and the evidence there, his responsibility is to move forward. Um, and that 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 is um, look, I, I would not want you to be Merrick Garland, okay, because he he's got some decisions to make that are going to change not only the trajectory of our country's history, but they will also have probably permanent impacts in um, the ability of our government to function. uh, no, no, No public servant in the history of this country has faced the situation of bringing charges against a former president this many senators, this many members of Congress, like I said, he's going to be taking a big chunk out of the government. I do believe justice needs to be served and it needs to be pursued, first and foremost, regardless of the political considerations. That, that, that's, that's an absolute. But you need to do this as methodically, as carefully, and as and as, as, as you need to proceed with as much caution, knowing Knowing the gravity of the of every single step that you are taking. And so I have urged patience, I have urged caution uh in, in the in the process of this unfolding. But and I think again, this is why the January 6th committee is doing doing him such a service, is they are they are fighting this in the court of public opinion and demonstrably showing the American people the evidence that are required in a way that the DOJ cannot do and should not do because it it is not quote unquote, a political entity. wouldn't be proper. Um,
1: Yeah.
3: It would not, it would be completely inappropriate. So they're doing all of this work for him and then we'll hand it off to him. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll candidly that has been my position since, since this began, since Garland began uh, the DOJ's investigation. What I will say is it is instructive uh, and I'm listening to what Al said, which is that's not necessarily his responsibility.
0: Yeah. You know, the other thing, uh, you know, we're focusing on Donald Trump, rightfully so, but uh, last time we had congressmen uh, indicted and thrown out of the, I don't know if it was through the impeachment process that got them first, or, or or a judicial setting that got them first, but 11 members of Congress were ousted at 1861 as a result of participating in an, in a, an insurrection. We now have clear demonstrable evidence that there are a number of members of Congress who physically participated in this insurrection. And what's Merrick Garland gonna do? Give him a free ride just because he's concentrating on Donald Trump? I that, in my opinion, is not fulfilling his responsibilities. He needs to, he needs to figure out the whole process, both on the executive and legislative branch. And if indeed You know, we believe what the evidence is showing through these hearings, that there are a number of members of Congress physically compromised in this insurrection. Uh, They deserve indictment and prosecution as much as the president might, even more so. So we'll see where that goes as well.
1: Over the weekend, the New York Times published an article about Democratic officials and members of Congress who are concerned about President Biden's ability to pull the party out of its current slump in the midterms, and even his ability to serve as president for a second term. Now, this isn't the first time an article like this has been published, and in fact, it's not the first time we've talked about it on the show. This is something I've been saying for quite a while now, uh, and, and it does seem to be getting Uh, more more coverage now in the mainstream press. They seem to be more comfortable reporting on this. And on Politicology Plus, we talked about a long detailed report in New York Magazine's The Intelligencer a couple of weeks ago. There's been a lot of speculation about who might be a Biden successor uh, were he to decide not to run again. But the Times article noted that nearly all the Democrats they talked to said that Biden's age, 79 now, would be 82 by inauguration day 2025, was a deep concern about his viability. And David Axelrod, the chief strategist of both of President Obama's presidential campaigns, said, quote, The presidency is a monstrously taxing job, and the stark reality is the president would be closer to 90 than 80 at the end of a second term, and that would be a major issue. Axrod also said that Biden doesn't get credit he deserves for his successes in office and said that the reason for that is, quote, he looks his age... And isn't as agile in front of a camera as he once was. And this has fed a narrative about competence that isn't rooted in reality. So as recently as Monday, the White House said that Biden does plan to run for re-election in 2024. That could pit an 81-year-old Biden up against a 78-year-old Trump in 2024. And it's not exclusive to presidential candidates. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are both older than Biden at 82 and 80, respectively. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is 71. The average age of the Senate at the beginning of this Congress, January 2021, was 64.3 years. Seven senators are in their 80s. Uh, You know, Mike, in 2016, Trump became the oldest person elected president. Uh, He was 70 at his inauguration. Joe Biden is now the oldest president in American history. He was 78 at his inauguration. How big of a concern uh, was age with voters in 2020, and what do you think has shifted in the last two years?
3: I don't think it was that big of an issue in 2020 because you did have two candidates of comparable age. Look, people are living longer, um, and I think that the age of of members is going to 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 you know grow as the population grows. I'm not concerned about the health aspects of it uh, 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 uh they, they are clearly there those those are part of it what I'm concerned about is um the, the the culture and generational gap of the governance of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish I mean remember we were all all shocked when george w bush was talking about the internets right and the interwebs and and it, th- these these are just examples of the difference of people of a prior generation dealing with a society that is under dramatically dramatic and 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 rapid transformation in a world that is that that causes me more concern
1: al former vermont governor dnc chair and presidential candidate howard dean has called for a younger generation of leaders to rise within the democratic party david gergen who advised presidents nixon ford reagan and clinton told axios that both Biden and Trump should step back and open the door for younger people. So how should we be thinking about a generational changing of the guard uh, in politics?
0: Regardless of the reason, there's a 50-50 chance that neither Donald Trump nor uh, President Biden will be on the ballot in 2024. And uh, and for, for totally demonstrably different reasons. Uh, the problem for president biden is a lot of the a lot of the concerns that the American people have today and so many of them saying the country headed in the wrong direction are related to things that he can't help resolve but he's blamed for uh inflation the cost of goods the war in ukraine uh you know the labor shortage uh, these are things that are really not in his wherewithal to resolve, because even if some government can play a major part of it, he can't march down to Congress and get anything done with today's stalemate. And I don't think that 22 elections are going to be easier. I think they're going to be harder for him to govern his last two years. So if he ends up having the current 70 percent, the country running the wrong direction, going in the wrong direction, he may decide for the good of the order that he'll step down. The challenge for that is that regardless of whether he does that or not, his party is gonna be saddled with the responsibility or aftertaste of a very bad four years. And so whoever claims the mantle is gonna have a hard time showing that, you know, they're starting with a blank canvas on page one. That doesn't mean they couldn't win. It just means that it's not gonna be an easy task for them as it'll be for Republicans. But if neither of them run, both parties are gonna have 10, 14 candidates running, you know, in my party, the Republican Party, it seems like, you know, like the Florida governor seems to be building up, uh, you know, pretty incredible force and seems like a likely successor, especially within that populist movement. But, you know, nothing's guaranteed in a primary. And for the life of me, I don't know today who emerges as the Democrat nominee. I mean, I have two or three ideas, but, but there's nothing there that I mean, The Republican Party is more defined than the than the uh, than the Democrat Party is at this point in terms of who their successor to Trump might be. Uh, you know, whether or not either runs, I don't know. Uh, you know, if Trump is not in, indicted by Garland, it could very well be that he does run. I mean, he has it in his ego. He fi- He figures he's not finished yet. If somebody as prominent as DeSantis runs for president, Trump knows that he'll be a backbencher from there on in. And so he might be tempted to run uh, if he's not indicted. If he's indicted, you know, things might change. Uh, but with Biden, I have a hard time foreseeing that in the next year or so, uh, things are gonna get much better for him. Uh, you know, the Fed's doing what it's doing. It may well bring on a recession, but the lack of labor supply, the logistics, the war with Ukraine. These are things I'm not sure President Biden is going to have a lot to say on uh, in, in terms of
2: what's going on.
1: Mike, one of the points that the Axios piece uh, points out is that the elected officials are increasingly out of step with and disconnected from voters, especially on issues like technology. And it's not just young voters anymore. It's not just like the kids, right? It's with as millennials are, are, and, and the Gen Z uh, generation uh, are becoming far more politically influential they are uh, they. They feel like this, you know, perceived gerontocracy is completely out of touch with the way they navigate and interact with the world, um, especially when it comes to technology. So, you know, for example, uh, Senator Orrin Hatch asking Facebook uh, recently about how they make money if people don't pay for the service. You know, quote, Senator, we run ads, right? <laughs> like, Dick, Bloom, Senator Dick Blumenthal asking Facebook security chief if they'll commit to ending Finsta having no idea what, what that <laughs> word means. Right. And I remember, you know, back in the day when I was on the Senate, like I had a friend who built a website for Mitch McConnell and uh, you know, showed him, showed him a, showed him around the website. And Mitch McConnell, uh, he's like, here, he hands on the mouse. It was one of those laser optical mice. Right. And he's like, here, you should take a test drive around your new website. And he picks up the mouse shines the light in his face upside down, turns it around and then hands it back to my friend and says, nice work. This is the man who is voting and controlling the agenda for the the Senate on, you know, things like net neutrality. How do we navigate these changes? How does the American government, you know, we know that Government is really never equipped to be uh, on par with or ahead of technological advances. Regulators are always playing catch up. They're always trying to pick up the, you know, fix the messes, fix the problems after innovation, uh, you know, runs its course. But it feels like they're just too far behind, too out of step. And I wonder what you make of that piece and how that's changing uh, the political dynamics.
3: Well, without getting into a, you know, a long diatribe about the inefficiencies or problems with representative government in the information age, um, I, I think that in many ways, we're at this moment where we are, we are living with a government constructed during the industrial age in the information age, and it, it just doesn't work. And it's 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 not necessarily just because they're older and more out of touch, though they are. It's It really speaks to the ability of all of these filters of government that were created to protect us from fast-moving events. I mean, we literally created a government uh, to, to put us in this situation so that we would have slow, deliberative action as a means of stability and protection. And I'm not too sure. That that's that's a good uh, structure for the information age it's, it's too slow um it, we do have to find ways to 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 increase it and and part of that uh, requires representatives who understand the technology that we're talking about who understand the age that we're in and can operate in a means in a manner that allow for the, the kind of social policy that reflects that Uh, Barring that, what we have is good staff work, (laughs) which is a lot of young staffers who do understand it, who can be the bridge to, okay, this is a conservative, this is a progressive way of viewing this issue, and even though you don't understand even what a mouse is on my desktop or you're still printing out my emails for me and having them you know bring them to me on a on a piece of paper because we all we've all worked for those those people we we know those people yeah we we know those people they're they're sitting in, in the halls of congress by the way yeah um you know that that um you know that that requires, again, at least for the moment, good staff work. It, it is, you know, it, it, a little bit of a sidebar. But you know, there was a long story done, uh, I think, in the New York or New York Magazine about Dianne Feinstein. Dianne Feinstein started her career in the Senate uh, when I started my political c- career. <laughs> right, this is back in the early '90s, and she had she had a whole successful career before that. Dianne Feinstein is is a, is a, is an old. Person, old woman, and her husband just passed away. And at a certain level, at a certain moment in time, there's kind of this Chuck Grassley effect. It's like, what are you doing? Like, like you're not even serving your own personal interest in being here. Like, go enjoy what's left, right? Um, enjoy the the fruits of a wonderful life that you've had. And that that concerns me as much as anything else is that is that this refusal to to leave this kind of Strom Thurmond effect, right where, where people literally want to die on the floor of the Senate and and and, and they, they don't have anything else. And um, the, that when you're in that type of, of a frame of mind making decisions of extraordinary consequence, I think we need to be, be asking some of those those questions. It's not just necessarily the age, but what, what it's, what's driving it, which is this need to stay in this place where you're clearly ill-suited to perform the job at hand.
1: Last week, the Consumer Price Index showed a pretty ugly report on the state of inflation. I'm quoting, pretty ugly. Those are not my words, although I've been talking about this for a while now. The report showed that the prices of food, gasoline, electric power, and other staples have continued to rise. Inflation in housing prices has remained high, and inflation in consumer goods, like cars and manufacturing, increased last month after a slowdown earlier this spring. There had been some hope that the easing of supply chains would have helped tamp down on inflation here, but the demand is still high. The cost of staple foods like eggs, meat, and bread has now hit its biggest annual increase in 43 years since 1979. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve responded by approving the largest interest rate increase since 1994 and signaled it would continue lifting interest rates this year. The three-quarter point hike will bring the Fed rate to a range between one5 and 1.75%. According to the Wall Street Journal, all 18 officials who participated in that meeting expect the Fed to raise rates to at least 3% this year, with at least half of those people also saying they may need to raise the rate to over uh, three and a third, around 3.375%. On Wednesday... Biden pressured oil refiners to produce more gasoline and diesel as Americans struggle with record high gas prices. Gas prices nationwide are averaging about $5 a gallon. In his letter to seven oil refiners, Biden noted that gas prices were averaging $4.25 a gallon when oil was selling at about $120 a barrel in March. CNBC noted that the current price per barrel is about what it was in March, but there's been a $0.75 per gallon increase at the pump. Biden said the increase reflects a shortage of refinery capacity and profits that, quote, are currently at their highest levels ever recorded. Okay. So gas is going to be an issue that hits home with voters. Prices are incredibly high. Biden has released oil from the strategic oil reserves, and he's pushing oil refiners to do more. The the, 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 the pieces in this narrative, though, are difficult to untangle and misleading if you don't understand what's... there. There's, there's lots of room, Mike, for uh, messaging to happen here and to really shape voters' attitudes. If you are to believe the White House's line... The, the oil and gas companies are making record profits because guess what? They're also suffering from inflation. The money that they're making is also inflated. So, of course, they're charging more money. Yes, in dollar amounts. It's more. Guess what? So is the, so is the money that, uh, that you have in your pocket. And so what's getting mixed here, they're, they're they're really twisting what's actually happening into a very good narrative for them, but it's it's fueling a lot of negative energy toward uh, corporations and and in particular energy companies that I believe is unwarranted because it doesn't reflect reality. However, it's a good it's a good line. Um, and also, I just want to point out that this, uh, you know, if the if the Fed raises rates to three percent, if they go up to three point three seven five percent, that is an astronomical increase. And what you have to understand about the entire U.S. economy that is is it, it is re- dramatically debt leveraged. We're not just talking about people who own homes or cars. We're talking about the entire economy. Corporations debt leverage their operations, and when you can't afford the, the the to borrow the money to fuel your operations, that's this is creating a downward pressure uh, on on stock prices. Uh, it's and Al, you made this point earlier, it, they're running very close to tipping us into a recession that could very very easily happen. Um, so. I want to start with Mike Biden's call to release oil from the strategic reserves, because for him, this is mostly a messaging operation, right? They know it's bad. He walks around the West Wing saying this is the bane of our existence. Uh, and the question is, will will that messaging, will these attack lines against Republicans be enough to help them in November or is, you know, the, our lived experience is going to Trump uh, whatever you know message they they attempt to put on this?
3: No, their messages are not going to work going into November. Uh, they're in deep trouble. Uh, they don't have a handle on the economy. It's unfair to say that he's got control over a lot of this. He doesn't. Um, but again, for for people like Al and I who remember the Carter years, when, when you start talking about issues like stagflation, right? With 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 no growth, no economic growth, and an inflating currency. Um, the biggest political problem isn't even an economic problem. It's the erosion in confidence. When people don't have confidence, especially when you do have this narrative of being kind of this older incompetent guy, people begin to feel like you don't have control of what is going on. And that's an easy spot to get fired in. That's when people are like ready to make a change. And people, I think, in in large part, you know, the the data is kind of split on this. While while Biden's numbers are not particularly strong, and that's being generous, they're they're weak. The the generic ballot on Democrats is actually doing quite well. So I mean, especially considering as weak as the president is, and with the economy, the, the Democrats are right in there in low single digits. In some places, they're ahead of the Republicans, depending on on the polling. So there's some split data out there, which is I think is important to take a look at. Look, I'm going to say something on the economics here that uh, is may be unpopular, but I, I'm I'm convinced of it. Um, the only way to stop. Inflation at this time, the one lever and control that they have is through these very significant interest rate hikes, and everyone's like, oh, "Oh, oh, wait, 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 that's going to cause a recession." And you've got the Federal Reserve saying, "Well, we don't want to cause a recession. That's not the intent." I'm calling bullshit. That's exactly what we need. That's what they, they have to. That's what they have to do. It's what they have to do. It's what Reagan did in the early 80s. You throw ice on this engine, which has caught fire and is now you know, the economy and unemployment is down to ridiculously low levels. People are having trouble finding workers. The dollar is inflating. And, 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 and the only having a recession is not nearly as bad as the rate of inflation right now it's not even close like that's not even a decision you need to get inflation under control now like now they're already they've already missed the mark They've got to bring it into control now, and that means they're trying to drive the economy into a recession. They're trying to slow the rapid pace of the economy as a controllable way to rein in inflation, which is causing an extraordinarily la- extraordinarily significant and measurable lack of confidence in our po- political system. It's going to start creating political instability. Um, and again, we haven't seen these types of hikes in 28 years. Right. And, and, and the other thing that struck me was when we talk about 3%, you know, uh, interest rates for, for people like me that grew up when I did, that's still ridiculously low. <laughs> I mean, like, like that, we have been living in two decades of essentially free money, right, which has driven consumer spending and created some of this problem in the first place. Three percent, three and a third interest rates, that historically, that is nothing. That's that is extremely cheap money.
1: But the era of free money that we've been living in has created an over-reliance on that free money to make
3: the economy go. And that's that's, that's, what's about. Right. That's right. And and that that was the danger of what Trump did. And I'm saying this as a Republican and as a fiscal conservative. He walked in and was like, look, we're going to cut taxes. We're going to cut regulation. And we're going to borrow as much as we possibly can. That's like throwing you know, petroleum or, or gas on a campfire and watching the damn economy blow up, which he did purely for political reasons, but you no longer have any tools to constrain an economy on a, because it's it's a wildfire you've set that's out of control. And that's what's happened. And so as the dollars inflating, as the economy continues to run, the only thing that the Fed can do to restrict spending is to throw the economy into a recession. They have to have economic growth stop or, or slow down dramatically in order to rein spending in and no one's saying it, but that's exactly, I think what they're doing.
1: Yeah. I'll jump in here. Nobody wants to say that, but is that where we're headed?
0: Well, look, I, you know, I mostly agree uh, with what Mike had to say, obviously, the greatest cost of inflation has been government throwing much more money into private hands than it needed to. We're a consumer-based society, and once you put that much more money in the wallets of consumers, you know, the supply side is going to shrink, the demand side is going to increase, and product costs are going to, right? That's the basics of the economy. And so, yes, I don't believe, though, that Giving the Fed the whispers that you're the responsible party for bringing down inflation is necessarily the right message because it's much more complicated. I'm not a believer in recessions. as a painful tool to bring down inflation. I'd rather bring down inflation in scale, not quickly. So if inflation's at nine, I don't need to have it at two percent or 3%, I'd rather have it, you know, over three or four years come down without the pain of a recession. And so my only advice regarding monetary policy is let's make this gradual, not immediately painful. Uh, Recession is very painful on a lot of American families. The second thing is, unlike most inflations in the past, this one's far more complicated. Why? Because it's the first time that America has a shortage of 4 million workers, especially in the areas that hit home the most. And what are those? Food products. You know, there's a shortage, if you ask anyone in the cattle industry, poultry industry, Uh, produce industry, they will tell you that they can't get enough workers, doesn't matter how much they pay, they're just not enough people. And so, you know, the cost of goods uh, is higher because the goods are more scarce because we don't have enough people. And yet Congress, uh, hands are are tied politically because they don't want to deal with the realities of a declining population and the fact that immigration is the only way to take care of those 4 million job shortages. And look look how our life has changed. You know, I go to a hotel, you're used to having your room cleaned every day. Well, that's not the case. How many hotels have restaurants closed? How many restaurants have part of it closed? You know, I go everywhere and that's what they tell me. Talk to a cattle rancher. I'm not a huge cattle rancher, a regular. We have problems in America regarding the inflationary cost of goods. That are not related to interest rates or money being out there. They're there uh, and so those have to be resolved. You know, the war in Ukraine, we blame a lot on that, but you know, parts of our foodstuffs are to blame for that, but not as much as people, you know, that it, and the war in Ukraine has become, you know, more of an excuse than a reality in terms of a contribution to inflation, I believe. And then lastly, I would say this: the greed in America corporate life has not changed. And as a Republican believer in free enterprise, I'm so hurt by that. Oil prices, you know, the, the price per barrel, as you said earlier, uh, is no higher than before. But look at the oil prices and look at the profit and loss statements and their quarterly reports by the oil companies. This gouging, it's price gouging. And uh president's done right by asking them to convene at the White House and do something. But you can't be doing that to the American people. That's cruel. You're making enough money. I'm not saying I'm not in favor of price controls, but I'm favor I'm in favor of corporate responsibility, however we do that. And if the end result is a White House shaming oil companies, uh, well, you know, so be it. And frankly, between you and I, if you look at their stock prices, the price gouging hasn't helped them any. And so, uh, you know, because the market reacts differently. I mean, uh, out there, there's, you know, 10% earnings uh, increase this year and 20% and more market decline. And so a lot of it has to do with, you know, popular investors' mindset. So it's very complicated. I hate the fact that people find easy solutions to the most complicated inflation uh, problem in our history.
1: It's good. Good points. All around. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching under the radar. Al, what do you have for us?
0: Technology. You know, <laughs> I, you know, we talked about it politically. Mike made great points, and you did, about, you know, the auto step that so many members of Congress have. And it's not just age-driven. You know, Elon Musk, uh, Elon Musk predicted that in 20 years, 20-some percent of the American workers will be unemployable uh, just because technology will be driving our economy and so many people will just not want to or are capable of receiving the education that make them employable. And so he said, "Get," he said, get ready to have, the good news is we're going to make a lot more money with technology, but get ready to have the biggest safety net in our country's history. Because so many people are not going to be employable due to technology. So technology actually brings so many problems to the surface. And we've got so many current problems. We never think about long-term problems. But in my mind, it's taking welcome technology because all this brilliant wonders and what it can do to benefit us in society. But how many people are going to be unemployable as a result of that? Yeah, that to me is something we need to start thinking about.
1: You and Andrew Yang as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's a
3: great partnership, by the way.
1: I want to see that happen. I want to see that happen.
3: (laughs) Andrew, if you're listening, Mike, what are you watching? I'm still sifting through the results of the primaries we had uh, this Tuesday. The biggest concern and anybody following me on social media knows I've got a, a, I've been in a mood for the past couple of days because of the loss of the Texas uh, special election seat by Democrats to Republicans, um, and here here's why: this Texas uh, 34 is the most, is the second largest Hispanic concentrated district in America in the entire country, um, and it a a uh, with very low turnout, seven percent, uh, the first time a Mexican born woman immigrant. Um, won that seat for the republicans she's essentially the latina marjorie taylor green this is a, a christian nationalist that run on a, a guns and bible uh god's gays guns agenda um what's concerning to me is the the democrats first of all the complete lack of interest in this race the hope that this just goes away the the, the orchestrated denial about what how significant their Latino problem is. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not in the business or, or desirous of the future of the Democratic Party. I, I really don't care. I'm concerned about the future of my country and, and the future of the Latino community as, as a responsible, healthy part of, that, of, that, of our country's future. Um, but to watch how the Democrats um, completely ignored this seat um, and, and the excuses that are being used, oh, it's going to be redistricted, it'll come back in six months, it really doesn't matter. That type of thinking is, uh, I've been listening to the Democrats since 2016. It's why they have continually been losing um, Latino voters. They are hemorrhaging them now, and it's going to endanger um, the, the hold on Congress, for sure. I am completely convinced now that the Democrats are not going to make the adjustment, certainly in time to get the Hispanic vote back, uh, by, certainly by November, if not by the next presidential election cycle. So five alarm fire bells going off. Uh, Texas is just the latest example. The Democrats don't get it and they don't want to get it because of their demographic base and their ideological silos. Um, Sorry to go on and on. I'm just incredibly frustrated and angry about the denial and incompetence that's going on. I've been writing about it a lot, talking about it a lot. I'm going to obviously continue to do that, but that's what I'm watching because it's going to be determinative in the outcome of Congress. Al's giving, giving us a a thumbs, thumbs up, up from Al. Yeah, so Al and I've been having up. these conver- Al and I've been talking about this for thirty years together. Yeah. So, <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, Mike is so dead on. I mean, he is right on. Uh, look in Florida, uh, the Democrats uh, in the Obama uh, election. Uh, were the best run organization the Democrats had. And they did incredible work. Ever since, they've been declining to the point where they don't have a bench. They don't have a a mechanism. They don't have a structure. And every election, they're losing seats in a state that was purple, but leaning Democrat just 10 years ago. And uh, I live in my state, Mike, every same thing that you say, the slips, the the lack of competence, the uh, political malpractice in my state by Democrats is just stunning. And, uh, you know, I'm a Republican. I want Republicans to win, but not unchecked. I want to see competitive races. I want to see the strength of the ideas that either side has. And in Florida, Democrats have had a total collapse for no reason. It's basically the same state, the same demographics as when Barack Obama won handily. And so, why, why is this decline? Well, Mike put his finger on it. It's just, you know, lack of uh, just, just lack of talent uh, in, in running these
2: things.
1: All right, gang, before we flip over to Politology Plus, where we're going to talk about Buzz Lightyear, <laughs> where, where, where <laughs> can everybody find you on the internet, Mike? Follow me on Twitter
3: at Madrid underscore Mike. And Al.
0: Yeah, find me on Twitter at uh, uh, LFL-DC Cardinals.
1: And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at